You know, I once heard a joke and it went something like this. There was, a, there was a woman who had been shopping and had bought a dress, and she knew she couldn't afford it. And so her husband says, why did you do it? I just couldn't help it, she said. The devil tempted me. Why didn't you say, get behind me, Satan? The husband asked. And she said, I did, but he just leaned over my shoulder and, and whispered, my dear, it fits you beautifully in the back. Yeah. Temptation. Temptation is the topic of today, and it's something that's all too familiar for me. Even just writing this sermon, um, I literally had to purchase a program for my computer that blocked all my programs and all the internet except for what I use for writing sermons because I have a nonstop temptation of going on Amazon or cleaning up my hard drive, or I literally changed my wallpaper on my computer. Like, I was just postponing and giving in to this temptation. And so I asked Jenny, she carried the weight of the stress of this week for me. Because she was like, is it done yet? No. No, it's not. But at one level, yielding to temptation, it feels like not a big deal. Because that when it comes to writing papers or giving presentations or even preparing a sermon, Sunday's coming and it's going to be done. And, and, and so it feels like not a big deal to push things off. And I'm sure you guys do that at work as well. But at a deeper level, a spiritual and theological level, yielding to temptation means something different. It means that you're putting something or someone else or often yourself into a position that you should not be in. And so, yeah, we, we call this idolatry. And in Romans chapter 1, it has what I think is the single best definition for sin. If you ever wonder whether something in your life is sin, here's the answer. It says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped the, creator, the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. We all face temptations, and we all sin. And it might be easy to, maybe some of you think that you have most of your stuff together. And the temptations that you have, they're, they're minor, like should I eat more ice cream or not? But Maybe you're in a season of your life where you are all too aware of the temptation in your life, and it just weighs down on you heavily. And these temptations, they're not just the biggies like substances or cheating on your spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend or even stealing from work or school. Maybe you're under pressure at work and at home, and so you have the temptation towards a loss of integrity. And so maybe you exaggerate more than you should. You make yourself look good. Or maybe you cut corners on projects. Or maybe you're stressed and so you have this temptation to have inappropriate anger and all of a sudden you find yourself at home having these impatient and harsh or angry outbursts with no legitimate reason. This is all temptation. Or maybe you have a position of power at work or at home and you use that to manipulate, to hold others to higher standards than you hold yourself. Or We just have this temptation all around us. And, and then there's the purity temptations, of course. And they face us every day. We have sensory overload. And we have the temptation to let our thoughts to not be in check. And, and you ever think to yourself, if only people knew what was actually going inside my head right now. And maybe we have the, the temptation to put our marriage at risk. Every day there's people in the news who are caught cheating. And so maybe you have the, innocent, you have the temptation at work for innocent flirting. And guess what, guys? You know what I'm talking about, and it's not innocent. Or, or maybe when it comes to other people, you face the temptation to be a people pleaser. And, and you rationalize this because in your head, of course, people, making people happy is a good thing. Of course, I should do the project like he wants me to. Of course, I don't want to make this person upset. But 
quickly our genuine hearts become less than genuine and become performance-oriented and about myself or yourself rather than the other person. And then all of a sudden we have this critical spirit and we lack forgiveness. This temptation is something we all deal with. And it's not new. It goes all the way back to the beginning of time. And so there's no reason why we... That's the reason why we can read a ton in the scripture about temptation. And so what does the Bible say about this? Before we move to Genesis in our text, I need you to hold me to something because I don't want to spend the entire day here. And I'm going to have the temptation to jump forward and talk theology. And if you've been following in our series in Genesis, Pastor Matt's been leading us through the first few pages of scripture. And today at Genesis 3, we're in the fall. Yes, you know the fall. People refer to the fall, and you know, but, but if you actually look in the text, the fall doesn't show up. The fall is what theologians call this introduction of sin into God's perfect creation. It's the fall that distorts our relationship with God. It's the fall that led Jesus to die on the cross. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We call this the grand narrative of Scripture. And it would be really, really fun to understand our text today and then go 30,000 feet up and then talk theology and talk about how it fits into everything else. But we just don't have the time for that. And so come back next week. I'm sure Matt will hit that hard. And if you have a community group, like I hope you do, it's a good spot to talk about it as well. And and so, so far in Genesis, we we started at page 1, chapter 1, verse 1. And in chapter 1, we have this narrative of creation. And it's the word of the Lord that creates. God speaks, and it is. And Pastor Matt did an outstanding job when he explained how we are to read Genesis. It's not a parable. It's not a myth. It's not a textbook. But it's God revealing who God is and who we are. And so if you remember the context of the book of Genesis, it was recorded soon after the 40 years or the 400 years of the God's people in slavery in Egypt. And then the exodus happened and they were freed and the people were oppressed and objectified and degraded. And so Moses, he goes ahead and he records Genesis. And what's the point? To remind God's people of who they are. What is their identity? And so if you were to compare Genesis to other Mesopotamian stories of origin, yes, there are other Mesopotamian ancient stories of origin. There's a lot of similarities. And liberals, if you were to go on, online, you're going to find all sorts of stuff that says, hey, Genesis isn't original. It's a copy of this text or a copy of this text. And people just pull everything together. But if you were an ancient Babylonian or Egyptian and you go ahead and you visit Jerusalem and you hear the Genesis version of the stories of origin, what will strike you is not the similarities, but the differences. Because in Genesis, there's, Genesis, there's only one God. Gods and goddesses aren't marrying and having children. That The sun and the moon are created objects. They're not gods. Mankind is the climax of God's creation. It's not the afterthought as a result of lesser gods having fights. God provides mankind with food and not the other way around. And so what we see in Genesis is the theology is vastly different from anything else written in this time. And so Genesis affirms monotheism, the creator God who brings things into being by his word. The place of mankind in God's plan is unique. God's concern and care for man is unique. The things that are so different in Genesis that would have struck you as so different, these are the things that are so core in the Bible and in the Christian faith. And and so these are things like the unity of God in Mark, or God's sovereignty we see in John, or mankind as God's image, or God's love for man in John 3. And so the opening of Genesis, as we read this, it, it prepares ourselves with this lens to read the rest of the scripture. How are we to understand who this God is and who God's people are? 
And so in Genesis chapter 1, we had the days of creation. God speaks and things fly into existence, and it was good, God said. And, and then the pinnacle of creation was the creation of man in God's image. And then in Genesis chapter 2, we see the Sabbath, God rests. And then there's this retelling of the creation of man. And in this retelling, God creates man from the dust of the ground. He breathes life into his nostrils, and man gets placed in the garden. And so we have in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, and in the east. And there, was a, and there he put the man whom he had formed out of the ground. The Lord God had made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so then God, the word of the Lord, after creating, once he's finished the creation process, he formulates a divine command. And so this divine command is in chapter 2, verse 15, where it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. In other words, continue what God was doing. He started it, keep on, keep on participating in what God was doing. In verse 16, it says, And the Lord God commanded them, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge and good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The command, the one rule, which as fallen people, we see it as a rule, right? Don't eat from that tree. But to Adam, it was really more of a blessing. Because some translations, they, they say you may freely eat. Ours in the ESV says you may surely eat. And, and so the, the Hebrew language, which this was originally written in, um, it's kind of fluffy. And so if you were to look at the Greek, which is the New Testament, the Greek language is super precise. There's 24 ways to say the word the, and each version of the word the have a different nuance. And so when you're reading the Greek, if there's any ambiguity at all in what the Greek means, it's because the author wanted there to be ambiguity. And in Hebrew, that's not the case. And in Hebrew, it's, it's fluffy, and it's, um, there's emotion and tone, and everything is included in, in the grammar itself. And so here in the Hebrew, the word for freely or surely of how they are to eat isn't actually in the text. What's there instead is grammar that interprets the tone and the emotions for how they are to eat. And so what the text is doing is it emphasizes the availability of the food. It's, it's In the Brian translation, it would say, you may eat to your heart's content of every tree. But of the tree of knowledge, again, evil, do not eat for on that day you shall die. Not that you might die, not that you will eventually die, not that eventually you'll die, but on that day you shall surely die. Do you hear the certainty of that consequence? And, and death, death wasn't a thing in the garden. And so as I put myself in, in the garden as an onlooker in my mind and I see what's going on here, what God's doing in, in, in Scripture, I imagine when Adam's told that he will die, he has to ask God, what does death mean? That's not something that's in the garden, right? And, and so Seth, he's, he's five, and he's learning tons, and he's asking questions, and all the time he says, what does that mean, Daddy? And, and so as he says, don't eat of this tree or you'll surely die, I'm sure God had to be like, here's, and here's what that means. And, and so here in the garden, chapter 2, everything's awesome. There's Adam, there's God, they're building stuff, they're growing stuff, they're hanging out with the best of God's creation. And I imagine that there's just this intimate relationship happening, right? And then we have this command or this rule or what I'm calling a blessing to eat to your heart's content, but don't eat from that tree, lest you'll surely die. 
And then last week, Pastor Matt preached on the search for a suitable helper for Adam, right? And God's perfect solution, he made out of Adam's rib. And then Adam looks at her and says, whoa, man, to what she calls woman, right? And the story goes happily ever after, sort of, not really, because verse 25 says the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. And it's there where our text picks up today. Um, somewhere near you should be a Bible, or you can try on your phone or a tablet. I, we often talk about how we value kids being here in the service with us. Uh, it's intentional that we don't dismiss kids at Children's Church, but kids being kids, they need to keep their hands busy, and so in back we have some activity bags with games and such. And, and then we also have these kid Bibles, and there's a variety of Bibles, and the reason is because they're all designed for different ages. Um, and, and so go ahead and, and look at those Bibles. There's also pamphlets for taking sermon notes for preschoolers and for elementary kids. And so what we're trying to do is to have kids observe their parents and their neighbors and their family worshiping God and learning what it looks like to worship God. And and so I I think that's really cool. I promise you are not being lazy by not dismissing the kids of Children's Church here. And so follow along with me. Genesis chapter 2, verse 25 is where we're going to start. That's really where this text begins. It says, And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the garden that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, and she took of the fruit and ate. And she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The word of the Lord. It, What we have here is that there's temptation that brings questions about the Word of God. In the former chapters, chapter 1 and 2, we we saw that what God said was very clear. And now what God says becomes a matter of debate. The Word of the Lord before brought life and order, and now the words of the serpent brings chaos and death. And, And so God's Word is older than Satan's lies, but Satan's lies are so shrewdly expressed that they're often more effective than God's words. And in the prologue of of this story, there's the nature of the serpent, and it describes him as crafty. Or if you have a different translation, it might say shrewd, or subtle, or cunning, or sneaky. That the the tempter was a serpent is indication that he's in this disguise. Remember, God created all these different animals, and it describes him as an animal that God created. And so he was subordinate to Adam. And, And... the fact that this, this temptation comes from a subordinate creature, it, it's one that would have taken Eve a little bit from surprise, and she wasn't prepared to have this temptation come to her. And, and then the appearance of the snake prompting Eve to sin, it's kind of a mystery, right? It seems weird that a snake is talking to Eve. And, and the text, it doesn't answer any of the questions about the origin of evil in the snake or, or what the nature of the snake is. It just says that what the snake said, which means what is it that we should focus on? what the text actually says. It leaves all those other questions in mystery. And, and, and it doesn't state what the serpent's motivation is. 
but there might be a clue in the characterization of the snake. Because in verse 1 it says, he is one of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. Now, this is in the, in the range of speculation now that I'm talking, and, and perhaps this is a reference to the snake being one of the possible partners for man that God created. And since the serpent was more crafty than all the rest, perhaps it was the snake that was the likely candidate for a helping partner, right? And, and so the snake was rejected, and while the woman was the perfect fulfillment of, of man and God's intention, the snake was rejected, and there's resentment. And, and so perhaps that's why he goes to Eve and not Adam. Again, that's just speculation, trying to understand what is going on here behind the scenes. But the description of the serpent as crafty is very powerful within the context of the text. Because the verse right before this, we're told that Eve and Adam, the two of them, were in the garden and they were naked. And the word crafty or shrewd, it carries this idea of being aware of traps, knowing where the dangers lie. And being crafty or shrewd, it's not, a, it's not evil, it's not sin. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 1, it says that one of the purposes of Proverbs is to help the naive person become crafty, using the same word. But here, the craftiness is used for evil. And the Hebrew language, the word is very poetic. Because the word for the two being naked was, yeah, Haram. And then the serpent being crafty in the very next verse is harum. And so we have haram and harum. And it's a wordplay. To the people who are reading this, it would have, they would have been a very clear intention that the author's having. So it's like nude and shrewd if we're going to have it in the English language. And so what we have is verse 25 of chapter 2 that there's the haram, the innocent nudity. And then there's craftiness of the serpent, and then our passage ends with Adam again, and Eve again being naked. And, and so this forms functional bookends. In, in biblical studies, he calls this an inclusio. And, and this wordplay supports this idea that the nakedness, in the nakedness, they were oblivious to the evil. They didn't know where the dangers lie. And, and so in verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Not only does the temptation come in this disguise and craftiness, but it also raises questions about God's commands. And and notice how the serpent, Pastor Matt talked recently about how in in your Bibles it will be all caps and lower and looks different when it says Lord God. And that's really God's personal name, Adonai Elohim. But the serpent, he doesn't call God by his name, it just is God Elohim. And the method that the serpent is using, it's intentional. It has purpose behind it. And the answer to the question has all sorts of possible answers. There's all sorts of options. The woman had the opportunity to defend God and explain what God actually said, right? He left that open as a possibility. But then what does she say? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the tree of the, the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. In the woman's response, what you see is that she's not very precise in what God actually said. In fact, she makes three different changes to God's command. First, she minimizes that blessing, freely eat of anything in the tree, and and she reduces it to just a mere permission. Yeah, if you want to eat, you can. And then she adds to the command. God said nothing about not touching the tree. 
And so she exaggerates, right? She, she adds what God had to say. And, and then third, she weakens the penalty for sin. She just says, if you do, you'll, you'll die. The certainty is removed. The weightiness of it is removed. And so unless Adam, who received the original command, passed it on to her incorrectly, somehow in her mind as she processed what this command was, it b- became morphed. Now don't hear me wrong here. Don't hear me wrong. When we take God's word and we understand it, it's not wrong to paraphrase what it says. But what happens when you paraphrase what God says is that when the, com- the commands weaken and then the appeal to sin increases. And so the serpent says in verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. You will not surely die. When, when the serpent saw that the woman had not retained the precision of God's word, all of a sudden the question becomes a denial of what God had to say. Notice how the serpent, he, he uses much closer to what God said. You will not surely die. That's not what Eve said. He answers going back to what God said, but he twists it and he denies it. And in the Hebrew, if you were to be a, a, a Hebrew reader, I guess, you, you would see that in the grammar, there's this underlying boldness on the do not, that you will not die. It's highly emphasized in the text. And so it was initially a question about the prohibition, and now it's this hardcore, blatant denial of the consequence of disobedience. And this is the lie that captivates humans. From the very beginning, we want to believe that there's no punishment for disobedience. That if you don't get caught, you're going to be fine. But the Bible makes it very clear that no one gets away with sin. Disobedience brings death. That's just how it works. And and, and so verse 5, it says, the the serpent continues in, in his explanation. And he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so not only did the serpent deny what God said, the consequence for sin, but he raises doubts about the integrity of God. For he justifies this disobedience by saying that, hey, yes, it was God who said that everything was good, but there's a greater good that he's keeping from you. There's something he doesn't want you to have. And it's available to you if you want it. You just have to take it for yourself. And so according to the serpent, God knew that when they ate, they would be like God, knowing good and evil. It was a promise of divinity, really. What what is it that makes Adam different from God? Well, God has something that Adam doesn't, and if you eat from this tree, you're going to have it. And so eat of this tree. And so now they believe that there's a greater good that's being held back, and that somehow they can elevate their life to be better. And so with this knowledge of good and evil, or with the knowledge of the good, there's also the potential for the evil. And with the potential of evil, there's the danger of destroying life. And this is something that they were not prepared for. And so in verse 6, our text continues, and it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The tempter, his work is completed. All he had to do was ask the questions and make the denial. And all of a sudden, Eve is convinced that God will not punish her for her disobedience. And and so he brought her to the brink of sin with her rationalization, and God thinks that she thinks that God's holding her back from divinity. 
And now this appeal of the fruit draws her into the sin. There's practicality for food. There's aesthetic beauty and the potential for wisdom. And so there's this physical component and an emotional component and a spiritual component. And all these different things come together for a possibility of a new life. And Eve is captivated and so she eats of the fruit. And I think this is what John refers to in 1 John chapter 2 when he says, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of one's possession, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. Natural desire for food and beauty and knowledge are gifts. That's a good thing. I want my boys to grow up pursuing those things, but to be used within restrictions. And the world ignores these restrictions. And so, sorry, not sorry, I'm going back to the Hebrew because it's just too powerful here. The words that Eve uses for, in this reflection is very significant. And the Ten Commandments, the last command is do not covet, right? And, and so it says, do, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your, that is your neighbor's. The words that Eve uses in this reflection here about the fruit is the same words that's used there in the Ten Commandments, from the same cognate, the same, the same root words. Strong desire, or coveting, as, as what's happening here, is often followed by an unlawful taking. Just, just a few paragraphs back, it was God who defined what is good. Remember when he built the garden? He said, all of these trees, everything that's here is good for food and desirable, for, uh, for beauty. And it's Eve now that makes herself the determiner of what is good, rather than God. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. As there's no accident here that it says her husband was there with her and he ate. Adam didn't need to be tempted with clever words. He just went along with the crime, willfully. First Timothy chapter 2, it says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. It was Adam who received the original command. It was Adam whose job was to protect the garden. Sometimes when, when I think back to the fall, remember those theology conversations? In my head, the fall includes Eve, her deception, and her transgression. And I leave Adam out of the equation. But how much worse is it for Adam? He, he was tasked to protect the garden. He was the one that God actually spoke the rules to. They're both equally guilty of sin. And when they can't handle the shame, they go to blame. And guys, when you sin, don't go to blame because you will lose. Verse 7 says, Then their eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The results of their actions, their, their desire to become like God, their, their anticipation of receiving divinity from the serpent, it was anticlimactic, right? Their eyes were opened in, in, in the Hebrew world. Um, eyes mean understanding, where heart means thoughts. And so their eyes, their understanding was opened, but their promises of divine enlightenment didn't come. Instead, what was previously right is now wrong. They, they knew more, but what they knew more of was the evil. And they saw more, but what they saw was spoiled by seeing it. And so they have mistrust and alienation when previously they had security and intimacy. And so what do they do? They attempt to futilely sew fig leaves together and cover themselves up. 
again, putting myself in, in, in the shoes here and watching what's happening. Perhaps they were really good craftsmen and they just immediately knew how to make clothes. But in, 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 in my perspective, if, if I'm sitting in the back corner of this garden and watching what's happening, it's kind of like when Seth tries to hide what he broke. <laughs> and, and he just kind of tucks it away. And, and it's just futile. It's like, really? But you see what's in the heart behind it. They try to cover themselves up. And, and if you continue through the book of Genesis, like we will, and for the next eight chapters in particular, there's this pattern of covering sin. Over and over and over, there's a repetition of people sinning and then trying to cover it up. And guess what? Covering up sin never works. And so the message to Israel and all of God's people and to us through this passage is that there needs to be a thorough knowledge of the word of God and an unwavering trust in his goodness to, for spiritual victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. A thorough knowledge of the word of God, an unwavering trust in his goodness, and it's absolutely essential for spiritual victory. It's no surprise then that the Old Testament is filled with instructions for people to know the word of God, to memorize it, to discern truth from error. Every single sermon I preach, that I have preached here in the last three years, comes back to Deuteronomy 6. It's kind of weird. But in Deuteronomy 6, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, every single place you go, everything that you're already doing, involve God's word in it. Be talking about it. Know it. Understand it. Teach it to your kids. And so how do we respond to temptation when it comes? We find that Jesus resisted temptation by his superior knowledge of God's word. When he's tempted by Satan in Matthew 4, it's God's word three times in Deuteronomy that he uses to confront it. And the temptation that Jesus had was also crafty. There's physical and spiritual achievement to be obtained if only Jesus would disobey the Father. And this temptation can only be rejected through the use of Scripture. And so what do we do about this? Sin is a choice. Temptation being tempted, that's not a sin. But yielding to the temptation, that is sin. And, and, and no, the devil did not make you do it, but instead you're listening to the wrong voices. And, and so the pattern of sin is something we need to know. And so in this pattern, we have the, the distortion of God's word. We question God's authenticity. We wonder, does God actually love me? If he knows everything, if he knows what I actually did, he could not possibly love me. And it says he loves me, and so maybe he's not actually true to what he says. And then we reject his goodness. And when you question God's authenticity and you reject his goodness, all of a sudden your pride becomes more attractive. And idolatry happens. And so in, in sin, we, we, we end our innocence. What good is good becomes distorted. Relationships are broken. Next week when we come for Easter and we're seeing what God has to say about this, what we see is that Eve first blamed, or Adam first blames God and then blames Eve, and then it's Eve who blames the serpent. There's blame happening everywhere. And blame, covering up sin, it doesn't work. So do you want, by understanding how this temptation works, we can devise a strategy for victory. And, and, and so what's the strategy? Well, having a thorough knowledge of God's word and an unwavering trust in the goodness of God. While Satan tempted Eve, 
we are led by our own lusts. In James chapter 1, verse 14, it says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Before the fall, Satan had to approach Eve from without. But after the fall, this comes to us naturally. It's part of who we are. The, the effects of the fall are on us. And, and so only occasionally is there satanic influence. Yes, it happens, but Satan's not God. Satan can't be everywhere. Satan's not all that powerful. And so although he, he's the origin of the original sin, um, I want to refer to him as and how temptation works. And, and so when we look at temptation, it's deceptive. Satan makes it look like sin will get you where you want to go. Sin will meet your, it'll meet your needs, and so why deny yourself? I went on menshealth.com looking for some sermon illustrations and looked up temptation, and there's a lot of nasty stuff up there of what temptations you should give into because life is short. Why deny yourself? But through the work of the Holy Spirit, we know why, because we know who's sitting on the throne. To be forewarned of Satan's strategy is to be forearmed, and so his pattern for temptation is the same that he used on Eve, which is very similar to what he uses on us today. And so we study this pattern, so we're not ignorant to it, and then we see it when it happens, and we can resist. And so how do we do this? Four things. First, we must be aware of new twists of doctrine and practices. I had a professor in undergrad when I was studying theology and Bible, and he said, as we have a bunch of cocky college kids that are learning things about the Bible they never learned before, and all of a sudden people start thinking that they understand things that are brand new that no one's ever thought before. And the professor says, if there's anything that you think that's theologically true and no one has ever thought of it before, it's wrong. That's not how it works. You don't get to invent this stuff. And Satan, he uses deception and lies and half-truths, and he uses God's word and twists it. And so we need to be cautious of anything that's new. If you go to Barnes & Noble in the Christian section, you're going to find all sorts of literature that says you need to love yourself and accept yourself to be happy, even when your life is filled with sin and idolatry. Just be tolerant of it. It's the chief virtue that we're teaching our kids in school. Be tolerant. Like there's, there's even a denomination that just split over this a few months ago, and we all call it grace. And if you're not being gracious to people, all of a sudden that's, that's sinful. But we need to know what God's word says. Second, we must affirm the authority of God's word. Satan always works to undermine and manipulate God's authority and his word. When you take away the authority of the word, all of a sudden you're what we, in the whole sea of what we call moral relativism. And moral relativism... You get to decide what is right and wrong. You get to play God. And there's no, no rudder on that sea. You're drifting all over the place. And so we submit to God's word. And the th- when I teach my teenagers is that no matter what God's word says, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how costly it is, or no matter how much you don't like what it says, it's the authority. And so follow it. Third, we must affirm the reality of God's judgment. You cannot get away with sin. That's one of the things that God was saying here. There's a proverb that says that you can't get away with sin any more than you can take fire into your shirt and not be burned. It just doesn't work. And so the fact that judgment is not immediate does not mean that it's not certain. Grace does not eliminate the principle of sowing and reaping. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians about how 
sowing, they're sowing and reaping for sin. But in the very same letter, he talks abundantly of grace. They go together. You can't just focus on the grace and, and say the sin doesn't matter. There is judgment coming. Verse four, or, or fourth point, is that we have to affirm God's character as revealed in his word. Affirm God's character. Satan will try, through trials and disappointments, to convince you that God is either not good or not in control. And once you doubt that God is not good or that he's not on the throne or that he's not fully good, it's a very short step to rebellion. You know, in the Old Testament, Joseph, he was thrown into prison because he resisted Potiphar's wife. He was sold to slavery because of his brothers. He easily could have become bitter and doubted God's goodness and sovereignty. But instead, years later, he tells his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You may have to believe despite your circumstances and hold on with faith. God is good and he is sovereign. And so a thorough knowledge of God's word, not a wavering trust in the goodness of God is essential for victory over the world and flesh and the devil. So how do we defeat sinfully yielding to temptation? Well, we can't. And if you try it by yourself, you will lose. But God can and he already has, and so trust him. And so how do we develop trust? Well, by knowing that God is who he says he is. And so how do you know who God says he is? And that's not going to change. Well, that's by definition who God is. His character does not change. And, and so we look through the word of God and, and, and we see who he is because God's word is his revelation to us, telling us who he is. And so we study the word and we know it. And then, so in Exodus chapter 34, it identifies God as the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. In Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, abounding in love. It was Jonah who did not want to do what God said for him to do to go to Nineveh, not because he was afraid of Nineveh, but because it says he knew that God was a compassionate God, a God who relents. In John 3, we're told that God so loves the world, the, the world that slaps him in the face, that he died on the cross for us. In Ephesians 2, it says, even when we're alive with Christ, we're dead in our transgressions and God loves us. E even when you're proverbially flicking God off and running in the opposite direction, it's then that God sees you and he loves you. Romans 5 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us that while we're still sinners, he died for us. And all of this, it points to the very last two chapters of the Bible. The very last two chapters in Revelation. Romans 21 says that the final, in the final days, there's a new heaven and a new earth coming down. Now the dwelling of God is with man and he will be with them. They will be with him and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and no more death or mourning or crying or pain or the former things have all passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. And write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. This is our hope. And then Revelation 22, it says, the angel showed me that the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the garden of God and the lamb of, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, and with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer should there, there be anything accursed, but on the throne of the God, the lamb, the lamb, or on the, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp of the sun, for God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. What is our response 
to a God who is compassionate to our rebelliousness. Right now, in this time of communion, where we we worship in this last song, you need to ask God to open your window just a little bit. If your heart isn't pounding for the communion table, not, not the bread and the cup, but for what it represents, you don't understand what it represents. You, you don't get how sinful you are. You don't know how much of a rebel you are. And so once you start to understand that, you understand the father part of God. The sin, it totally matters. That's not, that's not mitigated by Jesus dying on the cross. Jesus and justice was required. Christ died for us in God's love and mercy and compassion. It's all connected back to the justice. If you don't see God's love and mercy connected to the justice, you don't understand the God of the Bible because that's exactly who he is. There is no conflict here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you that you would be gracious with us. We ask you that you give us grace to know you in and through your word. God, we ask that you would give us diligence and patience. We are so dull and slow and dim-witted and darkened by the effects of the fall that we can't even see how glorious it is until you remove the veil of our hearts to behold your glory. And so God, give us the grace to do this by the power of your spirit. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.